Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and again, I'm in the book of Revelation. We've been going through the book of Revelation. We started in chapter 1. This week, we're in chapter 15. I can't believe it as time flies by. But the context for today is Revelation chapter 15, the, really the whole chapter. I, I don't think I'm going to get to the whole chapter, so I'm only going to read the first four verses. Uh, then we'll look at the last four uh, next time. There's only eight verses in this chapter, and it is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. But I'll begin with chapter 15 of Revelation, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Word of God says in verse 1 of chapter 15, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. And that's uh, found in verse 4 right there. So I'm going to stop with uh, the reading of just four verses. And I want to look at today the, the message that I'm entitling. It might seem like a strange title, but when you go through there, it's hard to find a good title. Uh, I'm calling this Seven Angels and Seven Death Blows. Because that's exactly what we see. We see the introduction to the final wrath found in chapter 16. And so I want to look at this today and kind of break it down a little bit. And as I go through this, I know that there are some things that uh, will come up that are, that are hard to understand, as, as in most prophetic scriptures, that are just very, very difficult. I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much controversy over uh, many of the portions of prophetic the writings in the, in the Word of God. But in here, I want you to notice there's a few things I want to get into before I, I, I share with you my outline. And that is, uh, there's different kinds of, uh, of, of wrath that, that the Scriptures talk about. The Scriptures are full of the fact that the wrath is reserved for the day of destruction, and they shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. And there's, so there's a lot of verses all throughout the Bible that talk about wrath. There is the sowing and the reaping wrath. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. Uh, uh, that works all the time. You, you sin and there are consequences built into that sin. That, that is a, one of the forms of wrath. There's also a cataclysmic wrath, such as the kind of wrath by which we see uh, God destroys uh, uh, whole uh, countries or whole cities. Uh, just a devastating wrath, like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there's cataclysmic wrath by he, which he engulfs a whole village. Those are cataclysmic. But then there's the wrath of abandonment. Uh, this is one of the. This is what I, I refer to when I spoke and about Romans chapter one. It's abandonment wrath. The wrath indicated in Romans one when God turns them over to their sin, and its built-in consequences engulf them. In other words, it's when God's. Not what God says in, in the wrath, but it's what, when God stops speaking, uh, the, the, the wrath of abandonment, which I think America is very much a part of that kind of wrath right now, today. 
Then there is the temporal wrath, those days of the Lord, those times of judgment that would pick up the pieces of what's left. Uh, and that is, uh, then there is the eternal wrath, uh, that eschatological final wrath that is coming on the whole world and ultimately results in eternal hell. Now, th- these are the kinds of wrath that, that are, are kind of built into the whole scriptures. It's that final eschatological and then eternal wrath of God that ends human history that is on the horizon. And, you know, I think the, the longer I teach from the Word of God and I, the more time I spend in prophetic scriptures, obviously you realize that, well, we're closer now than when we were when we first started this. And that's an obvious thing. But more and more... Uh, I, I see on the news, I, I see and understand certain things that God allows me to see and understand. And it seems to me that all the necessary parts are coming into focus. The necessary elements leading to the wrath of God are finding their place. Uh, it's like the chess, it's like I've referred to it many times, it's like the chess board is being set up and it's ready to begin. Uh, by trekking our way all the way from the initial introduction of, to the wrath of God in the oldest part of the Old Testament uh, down to the end, it just seems that it's getting closer and closer. It's, just, it's like one writer puts it, it just lurks on the horizon, perhaps of the immediate history uh, coming upon us really quickly. Uh, and I know you can see it too because I get questions. I know I, from what I hear from other prophetic teachers uh, so it, it is, uh, it, it's getting closer and closer and closer as we get to that time, which is why I wanted to go through this book of Revelation. And even thinking when I started, I may not actually get to finish. But I want you to know that when we get to this chapter, chapter 15 introduces uh, these seven bowls of wrath, the last wrath, the final wrath. Chapter 15 and 16 deal with the last seven plagues, which are the bowls of judgment poured out. Uh, We've been waiting for this. Remember back when we hit chapter 11, verse 14, the seventh trumpet uh, is the same as the third woe. So chapter 15 and 16 record in prophetic truth the end of the world. We are just days away uh, chronologically looking at the book of Revelation as the tribulation period, the seven years. So by the time we get here in this chapter and what I just read, we're very close, very close to the coming of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. So after the bowls, comes Jesus comes. Uh, of course, we'll have 17 and 18, uh, which we will deal with what those deal with, uh, which is going to take some time in, in itself. But Christ comes. So chapter 15 is the preparation for the bowls, judgment, that will happen, and we'll see them in chapter 16. Then we began to look closely at this as it was coming upon the scene in chapter 14. We said the, in the two harvests, the harvest of the souls here in, in chapter 14, uh, verses 14 through 16, is a look at the bold judgments in chapter 16. And then the harvest of the, the great uh, harvest will be a look at the Battle of Armageddon or the campaign of Armageddon. So what we have here is it's hard to follow. I understand that. But maybe if you just hear it over and over again, it will begin to fall into place. So the bold judgments that we see here, the preparation for them, we won't actually see them until chapter 16, are the last plagues that make up the seventh trumpet that finishes off the seventh seal. 
So we know that God is very gracious because in this marvelous warning of God's wrath down to the very detail, his holiness demands that he, he, he judge and his love demands that he warn. This is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation because it's really uh, preliminary to the 16th. Now, let me say this. The chapter is not a defense of what God is going to do. It's not written to defend God's wrath. He doesn't need any defense. He doesn't need any explanation. He doesn't need to provide for us some specific notion on why it is legitimate for him to do this. It's just given to us. And even though this is not an overtly written chapter to defend the wrath of God, it is simply a setup for what is going to come in the final judgment. In other words, this would be... In fact, really, you don't need a, a break here in the, in the chapters between 15 and 16 because it just, it's so, it just kind of runs together. So w- with that in mind, we, we, we looked at the text, and I want you to know that there are some things in this text. Look at verse 1. I saw another sign. This sign, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but as I said uh, in this, it's another sign in heaven, the third sign that has been seen. By the way, it has been mentioned in the book of Revelation. The other two are in chapter 12, verse 1, and then in verse 3 of chapter 12. And another sign appeared in heaven, it says there. And so we, we've seen these signs, but this is the third time this sign, or this is called a sign, is seen, and is found now in chapter 15, verse 1. This one he describes as a great and marvelous expression of the magnitude, uh, or word, the meaning of massive because look at what it says here. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, uh, meaning the magnitude, the overwhelming, massive, huge, shocking, startling, or overwhelming fact of what he sees. And, you know, sometimes when you read these things that John is seeing, it's, it's, you can't really visualize it, but you can imagine what must that have been like for John to see this. Remember, he was told in Revelation chapter 1 to write the things that he sees. And so he's been told to write this, and so he's still under that that uh, command to write these things. And so we see this sign, and then he's going to begin to explain this. Now, when we come to this, I want you to notice something else here real quick before we uh, go too much farther. I saw a sign in heaven, great and marvelous, uh, seven angels who had seven plagues. Now, I just want to center in on the word plagues for just a minute. Uh, the word plague is quite an interesting word because the Greek word for plague uh, actually defined out means a blow or a strife, uh, a wound or a scar. It can mean calamity as well. Uh, we think of the word plague uh, my mind automatically goes back to Matthew chapter 22, I mean Matthew chapter 24, or Luke chapter 18, or Luke chapter 12. But in Luke chapter 12, for example, there is this same word that is used here, and it says uh, for, for beating of a, of a person uh, with a whip, at the end their leather pieces of glass or stone are attached to it, to the very end of the tissue, even leaves their organs exposed. And this word is used there. Again, it's used in Acts chapter 16. Once again, uh, the, the chapter later on, it uses inflicting blows and wounds. In 2 Corinthians 6, 5, it is a term used for beating. In Revelation 13 and 12, it has the idea of a death blow. Uh, and so I'm bringing this out because this is reflective in my title 
that I have titled this message today, again, Seven Angels and Seven Death Blows. Because it says in verse 1, seven angels who had seven plagues. Well, plagues is, we tend to think of a, a illness or disease uh, when we think of plagues. And it, that's not really what it is here. It has the idea of it here as a death blow. So we're not just talking about some kind of illness or some kind of epidemic, uh, some kind of uh, a sickness. This, there's not that time for that here. These are rapid fire things that come. These final seven judgments that are poured out in hours and days right at the very end in rapid succession. These are what I would seriously call, and several other writers, this is not new to me, uh, these are death blows, mortal wounds that come with deadly force. The term is not here for the first time use. It's been used earlier in chapter 9, verse 18. When we talk about the, the plagues there, it says a third of mankind was killed. That would be a death blow because that many people died. Uh, that would happen in the sixth trumpet. These three blows, uh, it says in describing that fire, smoke, and brimstone, None of, those is, none of those were diseases, they're wounds, blows, or calamities, death strokes, or death blows that come from God. In verse 20 of that chapter, the rest of mankind who were not killed by those blows, or plagues it says, uh, they are killing blows, then it describes those. So you find in, uh, in the very end of uh, verse 6 of chapter 11, the two witnesses are going to smite the earth with such death blow as often as they desire. But I think it uses the word plague. So we're talking about something that is deadly. So when it says here in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, I saw a sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. Compare that to how it reads when I give you the, the different word for plagues. I saw signs, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven death blows. That adds a bit of seriousness to this and finality to it because we're talking about these seven angels have seven deadly blows coming to the earth. And he says, seven angels who had seven death blows, the last, the end, the final ones. These are the worst. They are the most severe. They are the deadliest that come, that God can send. Now, calling these last plagues from God, calling them the last calamities of God, or the last death blows, implies that the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, which are also plagues, they, they are not the plagues. These are the last plagues. So, these are the very last ones. They've all come from God. And so, it makes it a very interesting uh, picture here to see what John is seeing. Now, remember, again, when John sees this, he is seeing this from heaven's perspective. The earth doesn't see what John sees. The earth doesn't see what's going on, as we would say, behind the scenes. This is heaven's view that only John is able to see. No earthlings are, are privy to this. They are probably taking a breath of air, thinking that the judgments on earth may be over, those that are alive. They don't know that the worst is about to come. They don't realize what is being prepared to send their way and that it will be seven deadly blows. So, 
We've been talking uh, and anticipating this since chapter 14, as we read that last time, and getting ready for this. And even in chapter 15, we're still awaiting the actual revelation of these bowls as seen by the earth. So, we know that it is a, a very interesting time. Now, again, the word wrath means rage or anger. It's a passionate outburst of anger. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 19, this anger and this wrath at the end of verse 19 is called God's fierce wrath. Now, his wrath unmixed with grace and mercy. The end of verse 15 in chapter 19 talks about the wine press and the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. He will come in rapid fire, I believe, in staccato fashion right near the end of the seven-year period, uh, perhaps in just a few days from uh, from the very end it will happen, and it will happen in rapid fire. But in the midst of that final pouring out of judgment, there will still be the opportunity to repent. It's like I was telling a, a young man the other day, talking about his older brother, wanting, desiring the for him to be saved, did not know. I said, look, as long as he has breath in him, he is able to repent, then it is still possible. You just don't know. But this tells us there will be grace to the very end. God is a loving and gracious, merciful God. God is long-suffering, and we know that because of the warnings here. And this whole book is a warning, Uh to to this generation, and it will be a warning to that generation that is going through the tribulation period as well. They will be referencing the scriptures all the way through. And so we see this. So now let me get into the outline, and the outline follows in verses uh, 2 through 8. There's three things that I think are very important here. Three things, or what we could call reasons, that demand the wrath of God. And I'm only going to list these for you and talk about the first one this week because I'm not going to be able to get into it. But boy, it's a very interesting setup of a chapter that we have in the book of Revelation. It's one of the most interesting chapters because of what we see here. But the first reason that demands the wrath of God is implied in the Scripture, and it's the vengeance of God. We see that in verses 2 and 3, and actually verse 2. Uh, it, we, we see that. And then the second reason that I will probably not get into today, but I might. I'm, I'm ready to get into it. Uh, is the second reason for the uh, wrath of God that demands the wrath of God would be the character of God. So we have the vengeance of God is seen in here. The character of God is seen in here. And then the third reason that demands the wrath of God is the plan of God. And that we will see beginning in verse 5 as his plan unfolds. So all of these are implied in the scriptures. You don't find like in in verse 2 that the the vengeance of God, but you see it. You understand it. You understand it because of the words that are given here. The vengeance of God. Listen to what it says. I saw as it were a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. In the vision that John has, he sees some astounding, amazing things. Now, we're not going to go through many of them in this book, but here's quite a remarkable thing. He says, I saw as it were, notice it's not really water, It's not H2O. 
He says, I saw as it were a sea of glass. Something reflective. It's, uh, it's not water, as we, we, we know from Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So we know there's no sea up there. And by the way, this is a view inside heaven. John is up there, and he sees this with him in heaven. This is not on earth. Uh, so I know there's been a question about a few other things that John sees that, that were of the earth or at the entrance of the kingdom, but this is actually in heaven. But there's no longer any separation by the nations. John's vision here uh, before the throne, there was the, the same phrase as he saw a glassy like crystal. Now, crystal is not that flat gra- glass, is it? We know it's not flat. Uh, what's the right word? It's cut glass, and so it makes it uh, so that it refracts light. And so we, we don't really know what we're seeing here, but we know that it is uh, uh, it has the same phraseology as Revelation chapter 21, uh, that we read this view of heaven. And so when we get to this point, we see that uh, John says, I saw as it were a sea of glass mixed with fire, and then he sees people standing on this that have overcome. Well, who are these people? These people are those who have come out of the great tribulation period, and they have survived. But look how it describes them. Those who have come off victorious. Uh, Now, they died because tribulation is not over. But yet it says they, uh, they come off victorious, and look how else it describes them. Victorious from the beast and from the image Uh, from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. So these have completed their their time on earth, and we can't even imagine what they have gone through on earth to be where they are now. We know that it is a terrible time that they have been through because we've we've read that. We read. It's easy to read. If you want to see what they've had to go through, you can go back and read Revelation chapter 13. He speaks arrogant. It says the beast, the, uh, the Antichrist, speaks arrogant words, blasphemies for 42 months. Three and a half years, he opens his mouth, blasphemes God, and it's given to him, it says in verse 7 of chapter 13, to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And so we can read, we can just imagine what these people probably went through as he chased, had uh, people chase them down, and we don't even know what kind of death they experienced when they're standing there in heaven. But we do know they were required, uh, people were required, or people are required during tribulation to receive the, the number of the beast. Uh, and it says that uh, they, they will all be unbelievers that take that number, uh, take that seal upon them. Uh, the believers who triumph by God's power over the whole enterprise of Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and the image, and associated with it, they can be no other uh, than the believers from this time of the tribulation. I think that you have here is this a tremendous, glorious picture of all the believers, triumphant believers in the time of the tribulation, gathered around the throne of heaven. And you will know that they were massacred. Just know that they were massacred for their faith. Yet they, it says they come off victorious. They're standing there. They, they are holding the harps of God. They're in a whole different kind of light now. 
a different kind of time. We see them as far back as chapter 6 of Revelation. Under the altar, already having been martyred for the faith, we see them being slaughtered all through the time of tribulation, as well as <clears throat> some, of being, some of them being protected, like the 144,000. And the point I think is wonderful to make here is that God sends his wrath as an act of vengeance for the way his own people have been treated. And uh, so this is, as we have said, this is the, the vengeance that has come. So we see here the, one of the reasons for the very wrath of God is the vengeance of God. Uh, come, it's, and again, it's, it's implied here. We see this group of people, but this group of people, it says, uh, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps in their hand, and they guess what? They're not sad. They actually can sing. So we know they sing, we know they talk, because we've seen other groups, pictures of groups in heaven. Uh, like I said, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, so we know that there is this victorious celebration once it's over and once they are, arrive in heaven. And so it's a, it's a very amazing thing. So we see this in the first reason for the, uh, for the vengeance or for the wrath of God being poured out is because of the vengeance of God that's being seen here. So that's number one on the, on the outline. Number two, we see the reason for the vengeance of God is demanded in here. It's the character of God. We see it in the character of God. Uh, it is true to his own character to have this kind of a holy and final reaction against sin. And here, by the way, is the real, uh, what, would, what would, I guess we could say, fountainhead of God's wrath. It is his nature. And we find that described in verses 3 and 4. Here is the song sung by these saints. Now, they come out of the tribulation period with who knows how bad uh, a life they were living, how hungry they were, how beat up they were, how hunted down they were, how massacred they were. Because we know in Revelation chapter 20, we know that their most will be beheaded. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, you, you can look at that and sometime and, and check on that later, but most of the people that are killed and hunted down, man, they're beheaded. And then here they are in heaven, and they're singing a song. And the song basically represents the very nature or the character of God. Here is the song sung by these triumphant saints, is what we are calling them. It says in verse 3, And they sang. This is an anthem of praise, a song of praise that extols the character of God, which, is, which character is the reason that God has the reaction he does against sin. Because it's that very character being described in verses 2 and 3 and 4 that are the reasons why God has the reaction he does against sin. Now, if you were to, to look back in Jewish tradition, you will find that Jews traditionally reckoned that there were ten songs. First of all, Adam's song, uh, there, we find them in Scripture. Uh, second, there was a song of Moses. Third, there was the Israelite song. Fourth, there was a, uh, another part of the Moses song. It was at his death. There was Joshua's song. There was a song of... And, and so they go on and on. Then you'll notice... Uh, that this song mentions, I just want to draw your attention to it. Look at uh, verse 3. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So, 
we, if we were to have time to go back to all of this and begin looking at this, we could see that the Moses song had two parts. Uh, and in fact, this part that is given to us here, uh, which this is the song of Moses, if you wanted to check it out, you could go back to Exodus chapter 15 and you could begin reading some of that. And then in your reading that, you might would come to the section that you would find yourself asking, well, the words don't exactly match up. There's not exactly the same. Well, I think there's probably many stanzas here. I think this stanza is uh, being permitted to be sung by those who have just come out of the tribulation period. It's a song of deliverance. It's a song of triumph. And at the same time, it's a song of judgment and wrath and devastation. Nobody is going to understand this uh, unless they have come through this like these who are singing the song. It is sung by the delivered. It is sung by the redeemed. It is sung by those who have been rescued. And it depicts them gathered in triumph in a place of safety, in a place of security. And that is precisely the same song that is being sung in Revelation 15, as well as in Exodus. And so, but the second song is mentioned is the song of the Lamb. And this is the new song, and we saw that he actually mentioned to us in Revelation chapter 5. And I think it's probably uh, was sung there by the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb. And it says they sang a new song. So I think all of this is being combined here. And the song of Moses was sung. It's something uh, I got from, I think, three different writers put this together. Uh, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is the song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song in the, in the Scriptures. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of the, the enemy, the expectation of the saints and the exaltation of the Lord and the song of the Lamb deals with the same three issues, God's faithfulness, God's deliverance of his own, and the judgment of the ungodly. So I think I want to end right there because this is just a general look at the song. And uh, I, I just don't want to get too far because I won't be able to explain the things. And to me, the explanation of these things is far more important than just covering material. So, for now, this is William Rogers. I thank you again for joining me as we're going through the book of Revelation. And what a tremendous, tremendous study this is. I challenge you to stay with me, to keep reading the book of Revelation. Stay in God's Word. Do not give up one day where you do not spend time in the Scriptures. You will never regret it. You will never, ever regret it. I thank you for listening today, and we'll see you next time.